this morning is found in John chapter 6. We are scheduled to read verses 22 through 55, but the preacher realized that he was on the way to a 10-point sermon, and so I decided to spare you all. Uh, May God have mercy on you. 22 through 40, and then we will pick up with chapter 6 next week. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. That was lazy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks, and we rejoice in the good things that our Lord Jesus reveals to us, even when they are hard. And so direct us into all truth this morning. And we ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In 1966, Steve Blass was promoted from the minor leagues to pitch for the Pittsburgh Pirates. From 1969 to 1972, he was one of the most successful pitchers in Major League Baseball. He won over 60 games in that stretch. His career was taking off. And then in 1971, the Pirates made it to the World Series, where Steve Blass 
pitched two complete games, giving up only seven hits and two runs. It was a tantalizing performance. He pitched in game seven and the Pirates won the entire series. He made the cover of Sports Illustrated. With this victory, success bred further success. In 1972, he won 19 games and was named to the All-Star team. His career was at the high water mark. But then suddenly, without any explanation, Steve Blass could no longer find the strike zone. And if you're not a fan of baseball or don't follow it, that's not a good thing for a pitcher. Because he wasn't just missing the strike zone slightly. There were wild pitches in large numbers. He was walking batters in a way that he never had. He was not striking out the numbers that he had before. His earned run average ballooned. Steve Blass lost it. He won only three games in 1973, a drop from 19 to three. In 1974, he was then demoted to the minor leagues. After such a stellar career, it was embarrassing. And he still could not find it. And he then retires in 1975. A disease was named after him. In the sports world of psychology, it's known as Steve Blast disease. When an athlete loses their ability to focus and can no longer perform at the level they were. What happened to him? A complete debacle, a mystifying end to a great career. It frequently goes unnoted, but Jesus experienced something of a similar demise early in his ministry career, a similar fall from glory, you could say. Chapter six of John's gospel relays all of the ugly events about that fall. After a wedding in Cana that we Read and discussed in chapter two, Jesus has a growing popularity. His popularity was swelling through the region as people learned of the signs that he was working. He then heals a young boy who was sick and he heals a man at Bethesda. People were learning of him, but then the key moment was out in the wilderness where there was no food and a very large crowd comes seeking after Jesus and he multiplies a very few scraps to feed this tremendous crowd. And then the crowd can't find him and they know something strange has happened and Jesus turns up on the other side of the lake. These were momentous events and the people saw it all and so we discover in verse 15 exactly what the people wanted to do. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus knew that his popularity, the people were going to hoist him into kingship. They were going to take him to Jerusalem and declare him to be the Messiah of their own making. But then by the end of chapter six, despite all of this popularity and local support, we find that Jesus's numbers were not just down by 10%. They weren't even cut in half. He went from large crowds, and what we discover in verse 66 is this. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. In fact, Jesus was down to the 12 minus one because he even speaks of that betrayal that was to come. It was an utter collapse. That is a long way to fall. And so what precisely happens? It's noted for us in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, just referring to his teaching, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus, in his sermon, provoked the Scottish revival. He cut it and cut it and cut it. And his disciples, this great crowd, was reduced and reduced and reduced. And so what's important for us is to understand exactly what it is that is so hard to hear. Why was Jesus' popularity so diminished? And what is it that he was saying that we need to hear perhaps as well? Because Jesus issues a challenge in John 6 to everyone who comes seeking after him. And there's four things in particular that I draw your attention to this morning. But the first in, in verses 22 through 27, we see that Jesus confronts superficial faith. If you follow with me in verse 26, the people ask him the question, how did he get here? When did he arrive? And then Jesus offers an odd answer. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, it's interesting because the people had gone to great, perhaps, personal cost to come and seek after Jesus. They had gone on a journey around the lake after they had followed him out into the wilderness. And so you could say that these people were very interested. They were intrigued and somewhat invested in this mysterious person who they wanted to make king. They had given themselves to him in certain ways and fashions. But then Jesus, in answer to their question, he doesn't answer at all, but rather he begins to critique and he begins to speak something about the nature of their commitment to him. And we could observe that it was superficial. He says that you're seeking me not even because you saw signs. Jesus has critiques in previous chapters about those who would follow him just because of the signs. But rather he says you're seeking me a good thing, but you're seeking me because you have a full belly, because I worked a wonder, that I gave bread in the wilderness, that I approximated what God did for Israel, that I demonstrated that I was the prophet of God, but that's why you're seeking after me. And this is what Jesus knows about you, and this is what he knows about me. He knows that we'll satisfy ourselves with the slightest thing that he can give and that we will seek him on that basis and we will shield out all the other demands and things that he says that we are that easily pleased and that we can feign to seek after him. We can look arduous and like we're really committed, rigorous disciples of Jesus 
But he confronts that superficiality. He won't accept our flattery. He doesn't receive it. He doesn't want us to be intrigued or just interested in him. This is not what he's seeking after. And so when Jesus then confronts us in that superficiality, many people will simply turn away. It's not something that they can bear. When our flattery, our motives, when our misguided expectations are exposed, when Jesus asks, why do you seek me? When Jesus asks, why are you really here? Many people simply don't want to endure that confrontation. Weren't my good religious motives enough? Wasn't it enough just that I gave one day out of my week to go to the worship service? Why would he then critique me? Can't he just pat me on the back and affirm me? But rather, after traveling all this way, these crowds were then rebuked and corrected. They received an exhortation. And you can see something of the hardness of Jesus here. But in his hardness, he's speaking a loving word. He's attempting to break through superficial faith, a faith that doesn't look past its own belly, that's not really looking for the food that God gives that sustains life. Some people, of course, are offended by this question, and they believe it doesn't apply to them, that they don't need to answer, why are you seeking me? But what I'd suggest is that any indifference to the question and also any defensiveness reveals more about us than it does about Jesus. That every one of us as disciples who follow after Jesus, we need to be willing to ask that question and we need to allow him to confront us. No matter how long we have been following him, what are you seeking in me? Why are you following after me? Why are you pursuing me? Because superficiality can live inside of all of us. And Jesus would say a hard word to us in the midst of it. The second thing that's happening in Jesus' hard words here, we find in verses 28 and 29. And here we see that Jesus dismisses all self-directed human religion. Now, what do we mean by that? If you focus in verse 28, the crowds ask a question of Jesus. They said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? It's important to pay attention to the grammar here, the subject, the direct object, and the verb. I imagine it's been a while since you've had a grammar lesson. But note the emphasis. What must we do to be doing, verb, the works of God, direct object? And then note Jesus' answer. Because essentially what they're asking is what does God require of us? And then Jesus answers this way. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He totally reworks the grammar of their faulty question. And the subject is not the we, it is God. The direct object now is works and the verb now is not doing. Excuse me, the direct object is not works. The direct object, 
Anyway, you get the point. (laughs) Jesus reworks it completely where he undermines their false assumptions and there's two points that he's making to us. The first is that the work of God is God's work, that it doesn't belong to human beings, that the work of God is God's, that he's not wringing his hands in heaven waiting for you to do something on his behalf in which you please him. He's not waiting for your human efforts in which you gather up the steam and pull it all together so that you can impress him. The we is not the subject of the work of God. God is the subject of the work of God. He's the one who accomplishes it. He's the one who does it. He's not giving us requirements that we're to perform here, but rather the work of God is something that he does. We can't domesticate the work of God and bring it under our control. As Jesus said in John 3, the spirit blows when and where it will. That is the work of God. God's works belong to him, not to us. But the second emphasis of Jesus' answer is that the work of God is that you believe. This is what God is doing. So God is not giving you a list of requirements by which you can be doing his works, but rather what he is working is that he is working so that you will believe. It is faith. And this too is God's work. And what we must appreciate here in the Gospel of John that works in concert with all the other scriptures is that in salvation, God has two gifts. There is the objective gift, the accomplishment of salvation that comes through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then there is a second subjective gift That is the application or appropriation of it that God also must give. That God must overcome the sinfulness of the human heart and all of our moral recalcitrance in which we refuse all of the evidence and we deny it. That God must awaken the heart that it believe. That this is the divine gift. And in the face of this, there is an assault on the way that we prefer to do religion. That we prefer to make it about what we do for God. And Jesus reworks that equation and says, no, it's not a self-directed, autonomous affair. It is about the work of God and what he does for you. And the people thought this was a hard saying. And it is hard. It arrests you. It says that you must live in complete dependence. What he is saying is that you're completely reliant upon grace, that it is only in Christ, it is only by grace, it is only by faith. That is a hard word for people who want to work it out themselves. And we all have that in us. And so it drove many people away. The third piece to this hardness of Jesus, though, in John 6, we find in verses 30 through 34. And here what we see is that Jesus exposes our excuses. Just after Jesus reworks their question and gives them an answer that they certainly didn't like, they then make another demand of him 
in verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So if the work of God is God's work, okay, then you show us a sign. This is the response. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to recognize that the blood pressure is rising here. They have just been critiqued. They have been told they're superficial. They have been told that they are seeking an autonomous salvation. And they say, okay, Galilean peasant, what are you gonna do to prove it to us? They're looking for evidence. Martin Luther points it out that this wasn't a genuine question. They were putting Jesus on trial. It wasn't honest, it was defensive. And they were rudely asking Jesus to prove himself before they would give themselves to him. Now remember, they had just seen him work a great sign. They had seen the miracle of the feeding. They knew something strange had happened as he crossed the sea. But yet they were asking for another sign. It's not a genuine request. They attempt to compare him to Moses. And they're thinking, certainly he can't do anything like Moses. Jesus corrects them again and says, Moses didn't give you the manna. God did. Moses told you about it, but God gave the manna to you. And Jesus' answer to their request for evidence, where he goes is to say that God is once again giving. God is giving manna once again, and it's me. And so there was a sign right smack in front of them. And the problem is not a lack of evidence, but that they couldn't see that they didn't know how to evaluate. They didn't know how to hear it, to read it, to appreciate it. They couldn't receive it. That the manna was coming once again from God and it is in Jesus Christ, the true bread, the one who gives himself for the life of the world. And they didn't know how to accept it. That the sign was sufficient. They were not without evidence. Their problem was a moral problem of resistance. They were hardened towards him. And so he exposes all the excuses, all the rationalizations, all the justifications, all the sophisticated requests that people will make of, I would believe if this happened. If God did this for me, I would believe. If Jesus had done this, then I would believe. These can oftentimes sound impressive. And I suppose to many religious trained scholars who may have been there in the wilderness with Jesus that this sounded sophisticated to many of those who were listening and hearing. Jesus sees through it. He understands just where the excuses and the objections come from. They're far more pastoral than they are intellectual. And he once again is laying assault to our autonomy that we want a self-directed religion, one that we can understand, not one in which we must sit in utter dependence. And Jesus assails that fortress once again, exposing our excuses. The final piece to this, these hard sayings of Jesus that drove away the crowds, we find in verses 35 through 40. 
And here we see that once again, he destroys all notions of independence. If you follow in verse 35, the people do make a request after he says, I am the bread of life. You see at the end of 34, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, or you could say is coming to me, it's a present participle, it has a continuous active sense to it. Whoever is coming to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And Jesus here uses one of the most basic metaphors to human life to talk about our spiritual life with God, eating and drinking. And the United States were perhaps a bit separated from this about the necessity of eating and drinking. We take it for granted. We have food on demand. We have choices and options. Jesus's world was very different. People would have experienced the peril of not having sufficient food or drink. And so their bodies would have been deprived and they would have known how dangerous it could actually be. The threat of starvation. And so Jesus says that he is the bread of life, that he satisfies their hunger, that he quenches their thirst. He's the one that they must eat and consume. And that eating and consuming is had in believing that he's the one they must trust. And he explains that you must be coming to him. And the language here is explicit, that Jesus is not talking about a one-time transaction. They said, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus is explaining how the always happens. You must be coming to me. You must be seeking me, placing your trust in me, placing your belief in me. That yes, there is a moment of conversion where we are born again in John chapter three. And we affirm that and celebrate it. But there is a continued coming again and again in which we're awakened and reawakened. That this is the dependence, the radical dependence of the Christian life. That we look to Jesus, we entrust ourselves to Jesus. We hold fast to him. And Jesus insults us with this. He is saying that we're impotent, that we're unable, that we only have life and we only find thirst quenched, we only find real meaning and we only find everlasting life, life of the world to come. When we're depending upon him, when we're looking to him in that kind of humility, it's a full assault once again on human autonomy. And so it raises the question, why does anyone hang with him? <laughs> By the end of the chapter, we've already noted that the crowds were greatly diminished. If you were a pastor of this church, you would certainly be fired, one might hope. <laughs> why did people persist? Some hung on. He drove large crowds away. But I want you to note what Peter says. 
Jesus asked a question to the 12. He says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus says hard things to you. He says hard things to me. He said hard things to his disciples. He said hard things to Peter. And when he says, do you want to go? Peter's question, a response. Where else do we have to go? You give us the words of deep, meaningful, everlasting life. You give us the life of the kingdom. You restore us to God. You give us the hope of the world to come. We have everything in you. And whatever insult, whatever assault you lay to our pride and to our human boastfulness, we will tolerate. Because we believe that this salvation is by the grace of God alone. It is in Christ alone. It is by faith alone. It is given by you. And we must continually come to you that that is the true source of life and meaning. And friends, this is the great hope of the church, that we don't have anywhere else to go. We know that meaning and the opportunities for life outside of these hard words is very minimal, that it's a hard place. And because we know it's hard, we can endure the roughest critiques of Jesus. And in that rough critique, he's creating a very soft and warm place that our safety is in the grace of God that is objectively won for you in his death and resurrection, conquering sin, canceling all evil, canceling all judgment against you. God's yes for you in Jesus Christ, that God is for you and he destroys your sins and that God actually works the gift of faith in you as well. That's your safety. Where else can you go? Let's pray. Father, we agree by faith this morning with Peter. Where else can we go? Yes, these are hard words, and they break us and they humble us, but we trust that they're good words, good words that direct us to life. And so may we come, and may we come again and again to Jesus out of our sorrow, out of our bondage, out of our night, day after day, looking to him and finding that he satisfies hungry souls, that he quenches our thirst. He alone makes us right with you. We ask in his name. Amen.